Support for this podcast comes from Invent Together. I bet you didn't know that inventing activity by black inventors peaked in 1899, and it has never recovered. Black and Hispanic college graduates patented half the rate of white college graduates. That's just one of the reasons why you need to know about Invent Together. When our patent system gets more diverse, our nation will get stronger and more successful. Find out how you can help diverse inventors and unleash economic opportunity at inventtogether.org. Welcome to The Pollsters. I'm Margie O'Mara, Democratic pollster with GBA Strategies. And I'm Kristen Soltis-Anderson, Republican pollster with Echelon Insights. And each week we bring you The Polls, driving the latest news in politics, tech, and pop culture. So... Hello, I'm. if we have any new listeners who found us on the new iTunes midterm coverage collection, I am dialing in from uh, a West Coast city that has a lot of Kimpton hotels. I'm in a Kimpton hotel. <laughs> that doesn't really narrow it down. That's like a good, that's enough. That's enough info that everybody, for everybody to figure out, you know, sort of the basic gist of where I am. I've been traveling all week and I'm in a meeting room at the Kimpton and they're like, your room's not ready. I'm like, but I need to record my podcast. And I'm like, which I'm sure somebody says in this city, like every hour. <laughs> I'm sure someone like comes to the front desk with some sort of like podcast tech issue, like of once a day. Um, so anyway, so they found me a lovely spot and it actually Kimpton is the only company where I've been a participant in a focus group in the last you know, 10 years. I was a, like a, a, a very enthused, they had a focus group of Kimpton enthusiasts and I was recruited for that. And I was like, yes, I will, I will lie my way through the screen <laughs> to participate in, <laughs> as a Kimpton enthusiast. So, and then, and then the last thing, and I don't know why I'm talking so much, but Folks who were listening to this show a couple of months ago who may remember that I had done a focus group and people had to write when they're re-screener, when they're coming into the focus group, um, what their last group was about, if they had ever participated in a group before and what it was about. And somebody in a group I did a couple of months ago said that their last group was about jeggings. And everyone found that incredibly hilarious to think of like a whole focus group about jeggings. And so then last night, so that was like February, last night... Somebody wrote the same thing, you know, by the same question in the rescreener, and someone wrote stretchy jeans. And so do you think that's the same project as the jeggings from a completely different market and a completely different part of the country I from February? I feel like it's extremely likely that's the same project. <laughs> I mean, my God, how many, how many other focus groups can be out there about this topic? Especially since, know. like, stretchy jeans... Like, I think my first foray into anything even approaching jeggings, which was not jeggings, but it was, like, tight, stretchy, skinny jeans. Like, they would not qualify as leggings. They were technically denim material. You would never exercise in them or anything. Um, But that was, like, 2009. Like, it's whenever the Transformers movie came out that had the Victoria's Secret model who's now dating and or married to Jason Statham because in the movie she wears 
tight skinny jeans and a white blazer. And I mean, she's a Victoria's Secret model, so she looks fabulous. And I was like, I want that look. I have been persuaded that skinny tight jeans are the way of the future because this model in this movie fighting these robots looks fantastic. But mm-hmm. that was a really long time ago. Like, I certainly don't still have those jeans. So is this the trend Maybe cycle? Maybe they need a reboot. Be, well, yeah, the trend cycle cannot be so fast that like they've gone out and are now coming back, right? Or is this like big jegging is trying to figure out if their product is still marketable? Like I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe they're talking to lapsed jegging users. <laughs> I don't know. All I know is low propensity I, jeggings wearers. <laughs> exactly. I just don't know. I what I I just don't know is the moderator doing the jeggings groups like having a better week or the respondents, you know, happier or the you know, are do people has there a lull in the conversation? Oh, don't lie. You know, you would better? much rather be doing jeggings groups right now than like. I mean, <laughs> than all my <laughs> the things I won't talk about on the show that I've been talking about. <laughs> maybe, maybe I don't know. I don't know. I feel like the the emergency, the the danger that the, uh, the imminent danger of jeggings is just not the same as how I feel about this election. Like I feel like the stakes are just a little bit higher when it comes to the midterms than when it comes to jeggings. Well, let's talk about what we're going to talk about on the show today, which is midterm mania. There's one month to go. We'll dig into the aftermath of the Kavanaugh confirmation, the ginormous gender gaps aplenty, as well as some House and Senate outlooks. Plus, we'll try to talk about a smattering of governor's races here and there. Then Pew has rolled out some new methodology fun times. We will dig into the latest and greatest on survey sampling for the super nerd listeners out there. And we will wrap up on millennial hour. No, no, no. It's Gen Z hour. We're going to dig into some polling on what the kids these days, literally the kids these days, 18 and 19 year olds, are they going to vote in the midterms? We will discuss. Cool. So what is happening in all these state polls? I mean, people have just, you know, we're getting closer to the election. There are lots of public polls now about these competitive battleground Senate races. We're going to talk about battleground House races, the map overall. I mean, people are now paying super, super close attention to some of the individual races. What are you seeing when you look at all these races out there? I mean, I my take is that I still feel like the, the Senate is this total toss up because so many data points point in so many different bizarre directions, right? So like, let's take Arizona, for instance. So today, Wednesday, October 10th is when we're taping this show. Um, ABC 15 in Arizona has just rolled out a poll that shows Martha McSally up six over Kirsten Cinema. Now, that is extremely different than the other polls that have come out within the last week, where you had the CBS News YouGov poll showing Cinema up by three. You had a Fox News poll showing Cinema up by two. So like, just within the same, the last week, we've got two data points suggesting a close race that leans slightly towards cinema, and then one poll that suggests a less close race that leans, uh, you know, that's a great poll for McSally. But like, how do you, I mean, even I, as what I like to think of myself as a sophisticated consumer of this stuff, like, what am I going to make of this? Like, you know, Fox News, as we've talked about before, like their polling operation is not a partisan thing. It's a very well-respected, traditional, bipartisan polling outfit. Um, you know, I, I don't know anything about how ABC 15 in Arizona has done their research. Uh, so it's it's hard for me to be able to go through and just make sense of 
all of the data that is coming in. Um, but like, let's take another race, for instance. You know, we've had some fresh polling come out in uh, the Nevada Senate race where you've got uh, NBC News Marist that has Heller up by two. Um, you know, there you've which that's always been one of the races where you've had an incumbent Republican where people have said, oh, that one's going to be a scary one for them. Um, you know, you've got a couple polls that have come out and shown Cruz up by five or six points, which will come as a disappointment to everyone who saw us in Austin, where Beto was super popular. Um, but I mean, like, it's just I think that Arizona race where you've got those three polls that are kind of all over the place is very emblematic of how I am feeling about these things. Like every time a new poll comes out, I'm I'm weirdly not giving it that much weight. I'm just sort of like, all right, one more poll to put on the to 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 put on the pile and let's keep looking at these averages because there's just there is just a lot. Yeah, and and for some of these states, the methodology matters and also and it's not that one is right or wrong, but are they nimble and flexible enough to account for all the different changes in turnout, right? So there's the methodology and then there's what tur- what will turnout be, which group is going to have a surge or is everybody going to surge in terms of turnout? Are we going to have more turnout than we typically do in a midterm or is that just going to be on one side versus the other? You know, for Arizona and Nevada and Texas, um for the, in Florida, it's important that those states have, you know, do those states have language of choice interviewing among Latinos? Do, are they, um, do, you know, some states like Nevada in particular, you know, are they reaching enough people on cell phones? States like Nevada where people move into the state, you know, at a pretty, and move in and out of the state at a frequent rate. There's a lot more turnover in terms of people uh, entering and leaving the state. You know, you need to make sure your methodology reflects that. I, I'm not sure how these states how these polls are taken if they take all that stuff into account the way an internal poll would. Again, it's not to say that, you know, one thing is right or one thing is wrong, but it's just a way of thinking about how the methodology might contribute to the fluctuation that we're seeing here. Plus, you have a really volatile, this is a volatile time. Even if we didn't have any polling, we had no polling. There was just some, you know, temporary pause on polling until we could figure out what the hell is going on. Right? I mean, my, <laughs> my God, how can I trust any of this Tennessee polling? Because it does not take into account the Taylor Swift voter bonanza. <laughs> Sorry, is, is my sarcasm coming across effectively? Uh, I mean, I love me some Taylor Swift. Don't get me wrong. But like, uh, I'm just sort of being sarcastic. But to make the point that like, all right, we had this Taylor Swift stuff go down, you know, do we how is that going to change the Tennessee polls? I'm skeptical that it will. But like there's always something going on every day. You never know. And so uh, this is we got a month to go. But man, it feels like there's still an eternity left. <laughs> yeah. I mean, here's the I mean, the, the thing that I have to say. So the um, there's always this talk of celebrities and the role of celebrities and the importance of celebrities in getting out the vote, particularly on the left. And I remember after 16, there were a lot of people who were saying that Taylor Swift could have done something and why she sit on the sidelines. And I, I have to say, I was, I was doubt, I was a doubter. I was like, really, like this is out of all the things in 2016, Taylor Swift is like where you're going to cast blame and point the finger on everything that's happened. Um, but then the numbers that, you know, tens of thousands of people have registered to vote and not just in Tennessee, but around the country as a result of an Instagram post. I mean, OK, maybe 
Maybe I was wrong. Maybe, you know, the role of celebrity platform is actually more important than Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, color me skeptical of this stuff I, because I feel like – like people have been trying to leverage celebrity power to get people to turn out forever. Like I, I believe, uh, no offense, Taylor Swift. I believe Beyonce is more influential than Taylor Swift. And like Beyonce's always like, she's pretty clear about where she stands. Did she not do a concert yeah. with Hillary Clinton? Right. So like, I mean, you know, celebrities, musicians, like I feel like have weighed in for quite some time in politics. And I don't know. I also have. I, I remember hearing rumors after 2012 that like Taylor Swift was somewhat politically moderate, if not a little conservative. Now, I assume like hanging out with Lena Dunham and living in New York has has likely changed some some of that to the extent that was ever true. Um, but I did think it was interesting that she came out and endorsed Phil Bredesen like Right after he said he would have voted for Kavanaugh, I was like, well, this is strange timing. Uh, But okay, I mean, that's, of course, exactly what, like, the free beacon jumped on, like, Taylor Swift endorses guy who said he would have voted for Kavanaugh. I was like, oh, it's probably (laughs) not the headline she was looking for, but um, okie doke. So anyhow, uh, yeah, but so, okay, we have now covered the Taylor Swift story, but I think it, it, to your point... There's just so much out there that it, and it, I don't feel like it's like, oh, all these polls are moving in the same direction, right? Like, it's not right. like all of a sudden in every Senate poll, you know, a Republican was up by five and now suddenly they're all only up by two, or the Democrats used to be up by two in various polls and now they're all up by five. Like, it's things are not all moving in the same direction across a bunch of different races. I, I don't think I'm not seeing that. Yeah, yeah. No, I I think that's right. I mean, in the national polls, and we'll talk about that, I think, you know, the last couple polls from the last day or two have gone Democratic favor, but that wasn't true over the previous week. And, you know, the other thing, obviously, is important to remember here is that, you know, all these races are communicating. They're likely ramping up or communicating more than they were in previous weeks. You have House races underneath them in a lot of places, ramping up their communication. How does that affect, you know, if you have crowded airwaves in some markets and, you know, more so than other markets, how does that affect what people are doing and tuning in, tuning out, et cetera? It's hard to really get that full picture just from looking at a table of what would all the national polls show. Yeah, that's right. Um, But the other thing that I thought was fascinating, and again, this is, it's not just important to look at the overall I mean, it's important to look at the polling averages, but it's also important to look at trends within polls. So, like, let's go back to the Arizona race. You know, I, I mentioned there was that ABC 15 poll that was much more favorable to Martha McSally than the Fox News or the CVS poll that had showed Kirsten Cinema up. Um, but if you actually look at their the the trend line within that ABC poll, they had McSally up in their last poll too. Now it was only by three. Like they, they are showing it has gotten better for McSally, but they also it was a poll that was more favorable to McSally to begin with. So it's it, this is there's just so many things to keep in mind. You look at the overall averages, you look at the trends within polls and there's just a lot, but I don't think it is telling me like a clear and consistent story that wow, every race is all breaking one direction or the other. I mean, the other thing too, but, and then we should move on, we can move on from this, but the other thing too is that we you know, people were not even talking about the Senate in this way, you know, 
a year and a half ago. And I think the, and even potentially not even talking about the Senate this way, like two months ago, I mean, maybe, you know, folks on the left where you have now, at least on Twitter and the people sort of getting like grassroots engagement and folks to give money around the country, you know, small dollar donations to Senate candidates around the country. And that is a reflection, I think, of Kavanaugh on the left, that enthusiasm on the left to try and, you know, protect and change the makeup of the Senate, I think, is a reflection. I may add some additional volatility and interest and awareness, too. Yeah, because, I mean, from the Republican side, Republican pollsters, I think I saw it was Neil Newhouse, like, retweeting one of his uh, colleagues or partners at POS, but that, like, they are actually saying they're seeing the opposite, that they're seeing, you know, in many of these Republicans uh, or in many of these Senate races in Republican states, things getting slightly more favorable or enthusiasm gaps closing and stuff like that. So, you know, different pollsters from the Republican side of the aisle are feeling slightly better about things as a result of Kavanaugh, whereas I I feel like there are probably some House candidates out there that may be in more trouble. So it's it is not like uniformly playing out the same in every state or district and everything's not moving all in the same direction. Yeah. So, well, let's talk about Kavanaugh. I mean, and I've said I think for sure, obviously, I think it's important. Obviously, I think, you know, where people are on Kavanaugh is troubling that there's this much polling about a Supreme Court nominee and it's so polarizing. It's so negative. It's it's almost like, you know, a, a, an incredibly significant and, you know, massive sort of Trump news story of the day. You know, we have these kind of Trump flare ups and there's lots of polling about him and people feel very passionate about it. And, you know, the folks in the middle are maybe not paying attention, but folks on either side feel very strongly about it. And we all kind of talk about it. But this is not a tweet. This is a Supreme Court justice. And so it's just, you know, it is really, you know, create this kind of raw, extended reaction in that same sort of polarizing way that a lot of these sort of Trump things have been. Um, and so we are still seeing a lot of polling on this kind of aftershock of, of Kavanaugh. I don't know, you know, I haven't seen, I'm sure there may be, but I haven't seen any um, house races talk about this on their television advertising. Maybe maybe there there have been, but obviously there's, you know, this has played some role in some Senate races. But the polling, though, reflects where the news coverage is and where the news interest is. And that is there is still a lot of interest in this topic, even if it's not something that campaigns are necessarily talking about. Um, and most of the polling shows, I, I think, disturbing, given that this is a, you know, protected, vaunted, you know, institution where, you know, people feel that the Senate, a plurality feel that the Senate made the wrong choice in confirming him. That's from Morning Consult. You have, uh, you know, a, a plurality believe that Kavanaugh assaulted Christine Blasey Ford um, in in that same poll. Unfavorable ratings. We've seen that now for a while. Unfavorable ratings for Kavanaugh. You know, pretty polarizing views toward his confirmation from this is from YouGov with a lot of intensity in the disapprove, a little bit less intensity in the approve of his confirmation. You see this really, you know, no matter how, how these questions are asked. I mean, another troubling question, again, this is from uh, YouGov. Do you think Kavanaugh will be fair and impartial or do you think he'll be biased against Democrats or biased against Republicans? Just 36 percent say fair and impartial. 36% say biased against Democrats. So that's even between those two. A quarter say they're not sure. Um, 
And then this question, which I find kind of unbelievable, do you think Brett Kavanaugh would be justified if he's biased against Democrats or not? And 16% say the bias would be justified. I don't know how people are taking that, like whether like they understand if he would personally feel that way or whether that's okay, an okay position to have. But regardless, I mean, these questions, you know, I've never seen before about a Supreme Court justice. Um, So they're quite astounding. Part of the reason why I am more skeptical of the idea that this is going to persuade voters in the middle. I, I think that this is an issue that certainly is firing up uh, firing up the bases, if you will. But there's another number in the CNN poll that specifically asks about how Senate Democrats and Senate Republicans handled the issue. And there, there's a it's a bit more, it's split. Um, 55% of voters overall say they disapprove of how Republicans in the Senate handled it. 56 say they disapprove of how Democrats in the Senate handle it. So the data overwhelmingly says that like more people oppose than support Kavanaugh's confirmation. You know, that and that's that's been a trend even before this stuff, this stuff all broke and went down the way it did. But the idea that like voters in the middle are looking at Senate Democrats and going, gosh, well, they handled this super well, and I would love to put them in charge is like also not, uh, you know, not not really popping up in the polls. Um, the yeah. other thing that I get asked a lot, I, I have had a whole bunch of reporters send me emails and to reporters listening to the show, like, I'm sorry, I did not get back to you, give you a quote, but I didn't feel like I had good data at my fingertips. I, but I, I felt a lot of reporters reaching out to be like, I'm writing a story that shows that Republican women are pissed and leaving the party over this issue. And I was like, I have not seen data that says that's happening. Like, I get why you want to write that story. But like, I don't I I don't think I have not seen enough information to suggest that that's happening here. I thought there was a story, though. Was that in Politico where they was a Politico morning console where they were looking? Oh, there's a smaller number of Republican women. And so when you look at the subgroups, you can at the crosstabs, you see Republican women feel like Republican men, but there are fewer of them. Or did I make that up? Well, no. So this is I don't know that there's a specific story around this. But remember, we talked about like the the Republican youth vote demiglass, like the right, you know, when when you have fewer people uh, in the pool because like the more moderate people have left than it. But in this, so there is a morning consult Politico crosstab here about Brett Kavanaugh and Christine Blasey Ford that I think is is interesting enough. It breaks it down by party and gender that that for me is the first like piece of data that goes, ah, yes, Republican women are processing this a little differently than Republican men. Um, And it is, do you believe that Brett Kavanaugh sexually assaulted Christine Blasey Ford when they were both in high school in the early 1980s? Now, both Republican men and Republican women, only 11 percent say yes. It's identical. No gender difference. Um, However, on the question of no, Republican women are uh, 59% say no, but you have 30% that say, I don't know, um, that are like more skeptical, where for Republican men, it's 70% say, no, this didn't happen. So it's, I mean, it's a small, it's not a huge difference, but it is a difference. And it caught my eye when I was, was looking through this. Again, I don't know that it's like, going to be a big, you know, thing that drives a bunch of women away from the party. It it may well in the end. But I just I feel like I got approached by a lot of reporters that like had it in their heads that this was the story they were going to write. And did I have a quote about it? And I was like, I I don't have enough data to like confidently give anyone a quote on this. So I'm going to sit this one out. But I think so if any of y'all are listening, like that's an interesting data point. Go go take a look and see if there's anything more there. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, People are viewing this through the lens of party first, 
And then potentially gender second. I, I mean, that's, I think, what we're seeing here. I mean, obviously, people's party allegiances are already defined in part by their gender. So it's just, you know, kind of interaction on type of interaction, I guess. Um, but, it, you know, to the extent I've heard this come up in focus groups, it, it has been more of a party-based driver than a gender driver. And I think, you know, I mean, you're also remembering, you know, you also need to remember that people are getting their news from different sources. And if you're getting your news from a source that says, you know, no, you know, Dr. Ford didn't remember a lot of details and nobody else who she said was in the room, you know, they've all said they didn't happen. And she said she wasn't even sure it was him. That's a different set of news than if you, you know, listened to her testimony or heard about who had been called, you know, investigated by the FBI or called before um, the Senate Judiciary Committee and so on. Anyway, so, you know, I think people are getting, and, you know, everybody's individual experiences here are different. So that obviously plays a role, what your own experience is and how you reacted, how you integrate that experience into your own life, I think matters here. So it's, it's just really, uh, it, 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 it's, it, touches on a lot of variety of nerves at once. So, um, and so it doesn't surprise me that in that, in that situation, people default to their party worldview a little bit first. So, you know, one of the other places where we keep hearing about the the gender gap, however, is on like generic ballot questions. Um, And a lot of headlines have broken this week showing that the generic ballot when it comes to, you know, women versus men is now at these like historic levels of divide. So whether it's the Kavanaugh issue or the panoply of other things that has already contributed to um, gender gaps in this election, uh, you know, even before this happened. And we knew gender was was a big driver of how people are thinking about things just generally. And when we look at the generic ballot right now, um, the Real Clear Politics average has Democrats plus 6.9. Uh, again, that's a good place for Democrats to be. It's better than it was back uh, in the early summer when Republicans had closed the gap. Uh, it's it's not not good for Republicans, though. It's it's more like blue. It's maybe blue wave. That's not blue tsunami tsunami territory, I don't think, if if that number is true and holds. But there's some other polling that Washington Post has done about sort of battlegrounds, um, trying to understand what do these battleground districts look like? Because a national generic ballot is only so interesting. This is really going to be fought in specific districts. Margie, did you have a chance to take a look at what this Washington Post stuff was? Did you of have, course what was I came prepared. Of course I'm prepared. <laughs> well, good, because I'm, I'm scrolling through it right now, and that's why what I just threw it over about? to you. I'm, I, teacher, I did not do my homework, as it turns out. Um, well, the one thing that I would tell – one thing that I, I'm pretty sure is true about this Washington Post poll of the battleground is that they – What's different from other generic ballots, whether like, are you voting for the Democratic candidate or Republican candidate, is they actually, in this poll, I believe they named the candidates because they were able to say, are you voting for Kristen or Margie? Like, they are able to name the candidates. So that makes it different than some of these other national battleground polls where obviously those are national, but also they just say the D or the R. And so if you're not really sure who the D or the R 
are in your district yet, you might answer based on something else. The generic is a little bit different than the named ballot. If you're doing an internal poll, which these are not, but if you are, you often ask the generic ballot and the named ballot so you can see how your candidate does relative to the generic ballot. So that's just relative to how you think you might want to vote kind of aspirationally or without remembering if you don't know who the candidates are. When you're reminded of who the candidates are, do you vote a little bit differently? Because remember, again, in some of these places, there are a lot of there are not an insignificant number of voters who are not totally sure who the candidates are. Maybe they know who the incumbent is. Maybe they're not sure who's running for governor or for Senate or Congress or a state rep or, you know, they're, they're not. If If they were forced to kind of name who all the candidates were and all the different races in their area might not get them all right. So having the named ballot versus the generic is a good exercise. Anyway, so that's what I think is happening in the Washington Post poll. They talk about, they focus on this real big gender divide, Washington Post and Sharf School, we should add. Um, the G- Democrat has a four-point advantage over the Republican, um, a 14-point advantage among women, um, but a deficit, a five-point deficit among men. Now, this is a little bit different than the national trends, but I believe if you go back and look at all the exit polls from midterms, that there hasn't been a midterm where Democrats won without men also voting Democratic, that you need to have you know, the, there may be a large gender, you know, large gender gap is important, but you also need to have men come along too. It can't simply be determined by women. Now, maybe that's different this time around. Maybe this time around, you could have such a wide gender gap among, with, with women, you know, voting Democratic by such a large margin that it, you know, offsets whatever deficit Democrats have among men. That would be quite something. I mean, that would, you know, that would be, I think, his, you know, it, it would be historic, it would certainly be new, and it would, you know, obviously reinforce and the narrative that everyone's been saying all cycle that would actually be borne out, especially when you have a record number of women candidates. Um, and look at these differences here by gender and uh, education, white college educated women, 62 to 35. Um compared to the other, the most Republican group. So the 6235 Democrat among the most Republican group and the flip side is white non-college men, 38 Democratic, 58 Republican. That very much mirrors what we saw in the 2016 election. And we talked about it a lot at the time too, you know, that, and in the aftermath, I mean, there was so much conversation about white non-college men and how they felt about Trump. They're still not, you know, they're not a majority of the electorate, but they, they make, they comprise a large percentage of the, of the discussion about Trump's appeal and certainly his continued appeal. And then you look at the, you know, at the same time, does appealing to white non-college men then turn off White, white college women to the, you know, where those two groups are being pushed to either extreme. Well, what this reminded me of, you know, we've had a lot of, you know, there's so much focus on white non-college men as this like, you know, the prototypical Trump voter and white college educated women as this group that is now a solidly Democratic group, sort of your prototypical Hillary Clinton voter. Um you know, and I think it was Amy Walter. I'm going to give Amy Walter credit for this. And I got to go fact check myself on Twitter, um, who said, actually, the you know, if you really want to look at who the swing groups are, like we spend so much time nowadays talking about what does the white non-college man think? What does the white college educated woman think? But like it's these white non-college women and white college men that are actually kind of the swingier group right now. <laughs> um, and this this polling shows that, that, you know, the yeah. white non-college men by this almost two to one margin are Republican. White college women by a two to one margin are Democrats. 
but white non-college women and white college men are split like right down the middle. Um, and they, they do not get a lot of attention in punditry land. No, but they get a lot of attention from me because if there are places where we are doing, you know, we're doing uh, focus groups. Do or they if we do have white college educated men buy lots of jeggings? <laughs> yes. And they're like, why am I in this group again? <laughs> what are you talking about, crazy lady? Um, yeah. So uh, we uh, so I, you know, having quite a few places if we have to, like, you know, think about how we're segmenting our focus groups, looking at white college men and also looking at white non-college women for the same reasons that you mentioned as swingy groups and also segmenting our audiences by education and gender, since those are such big divides. And that while these are both swingy, they are so drastically different in terms of, you know, news awareness and, you know, the, and the views toward the, you know, the, the political process and their party defaults and like the issues that they care about. I mean, there's just like, you know, you look at this poll here, this table, and you see no, almost no difference between white non-college women and white college men in their D versus R performance, but moderating focus groups with like one group at six and one group at eight. I mean, they're so drastically different. And this has been something that, you know, we've done a variety of times this cycle. Well, let's go ahead and take a quick break um, and hear from our sponsors and then we'll be back. Are you good with people? Maybe you're organized or have a knack for numbers. Well, then chances are you've got skills that could lead to a new career. A Google career certificate can help you get a foot in the door with top employers in fast growing fields like IT support, project management, data analytics, and user experience design. It's professional-level training developed and taught by Google employees. And it's all online, so you can learn around your schedule. Put your skills to work. Go to grow.google certificates. All right, we're back. Uh, so let's talk for a little bit about the role that Trump is going to play in all of this, because I feel like we've actually gotten a long way into the show without have we I mean, we've certainly mentioned his name, but this is that was like the least Trump infused first half of the show we've had in a while. Yeah, maybe that's why I feel so relaxed. <laughs> <laughs> so a part of the Washington Post battleground poll that we were just discussing before the break asked people, how important is each of these issues to your vote in Congress this year? Um, the Supreme Court and other judicial nominations is top of that list. 64 percent of people saying it's extremely important. But Trump comes in second at 60 percent of people saying it's extremely important, putting him just three points higher than health care and five points higher than the economy. Right now, Trump's job approval is still looking pretty stable. Um, the CNN poll showed it jump from, I think, 36 in September to 41 this month. That could just be noise within their poll. I think when I saw 36 last month, that seemed lower than than normal. So this could just be it doesn't mean Trump's job approval's actually gone up. It could just be a reversion back to back to the mean. Yep. And also, by the way, we've talked about this. There's been some studies about how people are more likely to cover the outliers than the polls that show the same thing as the last poll. So that 36% poll got a lot of yep. press, but it's probably not. But I- I've normal. also been thinking a lot about, you know, we've there's the Kavanaugh moment, which Trump and his allies are viewing as a, a win for, for the Trump administration, which you also had – uh, the re- rebranding and tweaking of NAFTA into the U.S. Uh, wait, U.S. I'm trying to figure out which order it goes in. Um, is it Canada or Mexico that comes first? It's Mexico because it looks like U.S. Marine Corps 
uh, USMC, U.S.-Mexico-Canada <laughs> agreement, um, you know, are, are, do, are people just maybe feeling a little better about the Trump administration this week? Um, there's some interesting data from Pew that's trying to compare and contrast uh, whether people feel that the U.S. is taken unfair advantage of. Um, and back in 1994, you had 78 percent of people who said the U.S. is often taken unfair advantage of in 1999. That was 70 percent. That has shrunken. A majority of people say that uh, the U.S. is often taken advantage of. Um, but that is that has been reduced. Um, you know, are there more and more voters that think, hey, Trump is fighting, fighting to, you know, keep other countries from taking advantage of us? Is that something that's working in his favor? Um, There is, as you might imagine, an enormous partisan gap on this question. Um, There used to not be. It used to be pretty bipartisan that the rest of the world was taking advantage of us. Now that is Democrats do not uh, do not believe that anymore. Republicans uh, very much so do, which is kind of interesting. But yeah, I, I, you know, is there a is there a sense nowadays that maybe we're Although I guess the fact that more Republicans than Democrats think we're being taken advantage of kind of undercuts the idea that a drop in that number is like a win for Trump. Yeah, I mean, of all the various Trumpy things that we talk about that are upsetting to me, at least in the polling, not his actions, which, you know, there's no polling number that's as bothersome as all the things that he does. But the fact that there are issues that were not partisan before and now are because he's talked about them. That to me is, you know, that, that is, you know, interesting and troubling that there are things that people were like, sure, let's all agree on this issue, whatever that may be. This is one of them. And a lot of them are, are international in particular, because those are the ones where people are being maybe a little bit more, a little bit less defined and, you know, fully solidified in their points of view. But still the fact that, he can, he can, you know, create a and manufacture a partisan divide where there wasn't one before is really, really upsetting. I mean, it's a, it's interesting from a public opinion perspective that people can hear him say something and now they've decided, okay, you know what? Now I don't feel this way anymore because Trump does, or I do feel this way because Trump said it at a rally. Um, you know, that, that's, I think, a sign of how vulnerable we are, our public opinion is, and how vulnerable we are to, you know, to Trump and somebody like him. Well, let's take a look now at, uh, let's let's do a bit of a methodology shift. We, we don't have to dwell on the Trump question a ton. Um, just, you know, it's, it is interesting how Trump is, before, <laughs> before I start throwing chairs in my, no, don't get my thrown out of Kinton, the Kinton, I don't, I don't want Kinton hotels around the world to have your picture at the front desk, like, do not give this woman a room. We, we let her record the podcast. And it went totally awry. No. Um, so Pew has done a really cool study uh, where they're trying to compare and contrast there's two different ways that pollsters can do surveys. There's RDD and RBS. RDD is random digit dial. It means you're just calling a bunch of random phone numbers, seeing who picks up. Um, In this way, uh, you have 97% of people are in some way possibly accessible via 
RDD. Um, for RBS, uh, which is basically you're going for a sample where people have registered, uh, you know, with voter registration. Um, you're looking at lists of addresses, things like that. Um, you know, only half of people in the U.S. are contactable if you're calling off of those lists. Um, and especially if you're a registered voter, if you're calling off of these lists, um, you're still only maybe reaching, they suggest here, about 60 percent of people. Um, 60 percent of registered voters have a chance of being called, whereas if you're calling random digit dial, you could reach, again, 97 percent of people. Um, however, uh, there is a big shift in the political polling world away from RDD because when you're calling random numbers, you are not calling people who you know anything about. Um, you are maybe statistically more likely, you know, everybody's got a known chance of being called, but you don't know a whole heck of a lot else about them. Um, you know, Margie, when it comes to the methodology of campaign polling, I mean, isn't calling off of lists the norm these days for the most part? Totally. So there are a couple things. First of all, for some, like if you were talking about, I guess they're looking at a national frame here as opposed to a state or a congressional district. So the first thing is if you were looking at a congressional district or something even different, like a legislative district, it's harder to get an RDD boundary that is exactly right with a voter file you know, because it's on the voter file, what congressional district they live in, what legislative district they live in, what council district, whatever district you're looking for, it's, you know, it's almost always going to be on the file. So that's the first thing that makes that, you know, an advantage is that being able to get the boundaries exactly right. And if you, you know, if boundaries change, you're able to adjust immediately because it has precincts. You know, you are able to have a level of detail and granularity that is very, very difficult to do with RDD. Um, so that's the first thing. The second thing is you also have a lot, you know, a lot of folks are, you, you know, have proprietary scoring and models that maybe they don't use necessarily for weighting or for sampling or for, you know, for for that sort of thing, but use it for, you know, targeting and analysis after the fact. And you can't have that in RDD, but you can have it in the voter file because you have their whole vote history. So they'll, you know, they'll have a turnout score, which is an assessment of their turnout propensity and how likely they are to vote. So you can look at people who vote and they have a very high turnout score. People who are in the mid-range of their turnout score, people with a low turnout score. You have no idea of what that is for RDD other than their self-report. Um, so, so all that added information, it makes the cost of not reaching some people, you know, an exchange that you make consciously, but still can, you know, evaluate and decide I've come down on the side of, of using a voter file. And for midterms, having the, you know, the, that slightly that does having the smaller coverage in a midterm in particular mean that you are, you know, is that a bias that actually is more reflective of what the electorate will be in a midterm election anyway? I, this doesn't, quite answer that, although I guess it says, you know, non-response. I mean, that's separate. But I mean, so this isn't quite answer that because it's talking about registered voters rather than actual the electorate itself. So I don't know if they did that analysis, if they would then come down on the side of RBS. Yeah, over it RDD. says, I mean, even with RDD, if you're just calling random phone numbers, you you wind up with people taking your poll who are proportionally, it's too white, it's too old, it's too educated um, compared to the average uh, average U.S. adult. Um, and they say that with RDD, you wind up, they say same pattern 
but or pardon me, with RBS, it's the same pattern but more acute. Um, response rates are pretty similar between the two being so low. Um, but I think that, gosh, man, <laughs> like 6 and 8 percent, that's that's brutal. But I think the most important thing for political polling to take away from this is that the quality of your list is going to be very different state to state. So they found that, for instance, you know, in Alaska, only 30 percent of like people on the voter file, like there was a phone number you could call. Where in Indiana, like it was 84 percent. I mean, it was much higher. Uh, so this is also the sort of thing where from state to state, you could wind up with a, a very different situation. Yeah. Yeah. No, I I, I think, um, well, this is for folks who like to kind of nerd out and think about how sampling works. I think that's worth, you know, looking into. I mean, look, the other thing, too, is cost and, you know, just as I mean, it, it, does it matter? I mean, obviously, if one is better, one is better. But it, the fact that RDD is not necessarily an improvement over RBS, but it costs about 25% more because you're talking to people, you know, you have a lot of sort of numbers who are, you know, folks who say they terminate out or they are, you know, they're wrong numbers, et cetera. You, they're, they've gone through fewer kind of checks and hurdles the way a voter file list might. Now, I, I what I don't know does, are... Both of these, do they have, are they comparing cells to landlines, you know, apples to apples? Uh, yeah, I, hmm. I'm not sure what this study is doing. I'm I mean, I, yeah, I don't think Pew does anything that's just landline. Um, right. But I mean, I would assume they'd looked at the same percentage of, land, of cell phones in each of these comparisons. But anyway. I'm sure they'll tweet us with some very elaborate <laughs> response. <laughs> that will, will underscore just how much more like sophisticated methodologically they are than me. Like, I know enough to be dangerous, but not enough to be uh, right. Exactly. You know, postdoctorate. Exactly. Um, okay. Well, exactly. uh, that's, that's why we're friends. <laughs> we know enough to be dangerous, but not enough to be perfect. Um, so, uh, yeah. last but not least, let's let's end on our Gen Z poll. Um, this is the the Tufts University. They have a, a, a center they're affiliated with called Circle. That's a, about youth political advocacy, and they've dropped. They've been putting out data for like seventeen years now. It's kind of like the cousin of the Harvard Youth Poll. Like they've been around almost two decades. It's a good nonpartisan look at what young voters are thinking, and they they dropped some data earlier this week. And I mean, maybe it's just because I've been doing this now for like a decade. But like, color me skeptical every time I see a new poll that comes out and is like, no, really, this is the year that young voters are going to vote and matter. Like, I guess I've just been like, I've seen that said so many times. And like, yeah, young voters matter quite a bit. That's why I've cared about them. But like, it's it always feels like those are kind of get overblown. Um, but this time around, <laughs> this time, maybe it's different. Um, I did a really great interview with Abby Kisa, um, who is the uh, director of Impact at Circle, uh, did an interview with her that's going to go up at WashingtonExaminer.com here in a couple days. Um, But I asked her that. I was like, look, these polls about youth political engagement, they come out all the time. Um, Why should I believe that this this time is different? She said, no, 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 it really is. She said part of the difference is that typically when you do these surveys of like 18 to 24-year-olds, you see that the people in their early to mid-20s are pretty hyped about voting, but the 18 and 19-year-olds like couldn't really care less. And she says, this time around, that's different. That you've got this piece of the generation that typically is not as fired up, that is reporting being more fired up. So whether this is like a the Parkland kids effect or what have you, um, you know, she really 
suggested that this time around is going to be different. Um, in news that will surprise no one, when you ask the generic ballot to younger voters by a 45 to 26 margin, young voters are leaning toward Democratic versus Republican candidates. Uh, that is uh, as pronounced as you would expect among black and Latino youth. Um, among young white men, they lean about seven points in Republicans' favor. Among young white women, they lean about 10 points in Democrats' favor. Um, but yeah, this is what they have suggested is that when you compare their data to previous pre-election, how engaged are the kids these days uh, type numbers, that they are really finding they think young voters are going to play a bigger deal in this midterm than they have in the past and that their levels of engagement and enthusiasm seem to be matching what they showed before the 2016 election, which if that really shows up at the ballot box, that would be a, a really kind of blockbuster uh, thing to have happen. Yeah. No, my goodness. And then um, then we have to have the selfie vote 2.0 to make sure. Oh, my God. No one would be happier than that, about that than my uh, my literary agent. <laughs> <laughs> my god uh. yep <laughs> maybe he's behind all, all these numbers <laughs> quick somebody do somebody do a poll okay all right so key findings so october surprise we're here and i guess the surprise is everything is very crazy and where and volatile and where the president goes do people follow we'll see but more importantly what about taylor swift you can find us on Twitter at, at the Pollsters, individually at, at Margie O'Meara and at Kay Soltis Anderson or www.thepolsters.com. Thanks. Bye.